0: And answers. Is our planet unique? If so, how do we know this? Does it direct us to an intelligent creator? Or did it come into being by some other means? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat will conclude his interview with astronomer Hugh Ross. Here with part two of The Improbable Planet is Pat Zucaran.
1: Billions of planets out there and stars that we haven't discovered yet. Is there a chance that there is another planet out there that could sustain life?
2: Well, on my Facebook page, I had an atheist uh, post that saying, you know, Dr. Ross, uh, we know that there's 100 billion trillion planets conceivably existing in the universe. That's 10 to the 23 planets. With that many planets, surely you're going to find one by chance that can sustain life. I said, well, you add up the zeros, it's only 23 zeros. You'll see in our website, it's reasons.org fine-tuning. It's a compendium where we calculate the possibility that the known 850 different parameters that must be fine-tuned to make life possible, that probability of that happening without divine miraculous interventions is less than one chance in 10 to the 1,050th power. So I shared with the atheist skeptic on my Facebook page, you got 23 zeros, I got 1,050 zeros. Your 23 zeros aren't going to make a bit of difference. It's impossible from a naturalistic perspective for it to happen given the universe in which we live.
1: Those are just incredible odds of something like that just coming about by chance.
2: Well, to put it in context, it's roughly equivalent to someone here in California Winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where they buy just one ticket each time. Or as a mathematician friend of mine put it, it's no different than the probability of winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you don't buy any tickets at all. A number that remote, it's impossible.
1: Yeah, and if someone did, you would assume this thing is rigged. There's a, course, a intelligence right. behind it.
2: Matter of fact, you'd be justified in saying it's rigged if somebody flipped a coin 10 times in a row and it came up heads all 10 times. You'd know you're dealing with a rigged coin.
1: Wow. You know, Hugh, if there was life on other planets or what we're studying, how would we be able to detect it?
2: Well, we actually have the technology today to do that very thing. In fact, some of my astronomer friends are trying to do that. If you detect a huge amount of oxygen in the atmosphere combined with a lot of methane, and you know it's only coming from that planet and not from a moon or another planet, then that's a good sign that you've got life on that planet. And what would confirm that is if you could see the carbon and nitrogen and sulfur isotope ratios that only life manifests. For example, that's how we know the date of the origin of life on planet Earth. We don't have the fossils of Earth's first life, but we have the isotope signatures that tell us, indeed, those molecules are from life and not from non-life. So, yeah, we've got the tools to do it. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it can be done.
1: Well, Hugh, why is there such a strong drive to find life on other planets?
2: Well, I think that's driven by the fact that when we look at planet Earth we can show that the origin of life happened here as early as the laws of physics would permit, and it was an instantaneous event, which has caused a number of my non-Christian peers to say that means the origin of life must be a very easy step. And the an easy step, it's got to be everywhere in the universe. Now, what they're overlooking, the only way you're going to get human beings or the equivalent of human beings on a planet As if the origin of life happens as early as the laws of physics would permit, and only if it's instantaneous. And I would say that's the signature that God was the one that was responsible for the origin of life, because he made it happen as early as it could possibly take place, and it was instantaneous, it wasn't a gradual process. Moreover, we know it must be God, because when we look on Earth, we realize the building blocks that are necessary for the origin of life are missing. So it takes supernatural intervention. So, for example, there is no source of ribose that we can find outside of biological systems, not only on Earth, but nowhere else in the universe. If you don't have ribose, you can't make DNA and RNA.
1: Now, Hugh, speaking of the origin of life, is there a theory of a naturalistic explanation that can explain how life came to be?
2: Well my colleague Fuzz Rana, our staff biochemist and I, wrote a book called Origins of Life and it was based on attending origin of life research conferences. And we noticed at those conferences is that the scientists there freely admitted that they don't have an hypothesis for the origin of life by a naturalistic means. They don't even have a scenario. And so this is what caused us to say, well, that lack of a scenario tells us it must be a supernatural event. And our book got reviewed in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, and uh, one of the leading origin-of-life researchers reviewed our book. He was an atheist, but basically his review was, the science is outstanding. I like everything in the book except the Jesus Christ part. Uh, But then I would go back to the whole point, is that if you don't have the building blocks for the assembly of a living system, you do not have a naturalistic model even a conceivable naturalistic model for the origin of life. you are not just missing the ribose. you are also missing the essential amino acids, lysine and arginine. As far as the rest of the building block molecules go, yes, we do see them outside of biological systems, but at abundance levels far too low to be of any help to any naturalistic model. And this is freely admitted in the scientific literature. You know, Pick up any recent book on the origin of life, and you'll see there is no hypothesis on the table. There's not even a scenario on the table to explain the origin of life from a naturalistic means.
1: Now, that's pretty surprising that you're saying that, that the scientists acknowledge that, because what we're learning in school is that there is a good naturalistic explanation. In fact, that's the only viable explanation, and you cannot bring in God or the divine intelligence. That's not a valid explanation. But we're taught that... There is a valid explanation out there. You're saying there isn't one.
2: Well, we're actually getting into schools uh, with our books because basically we tell the biology teachers, your book on biology is a very good book, but there are two chapters where it needs to be updated, the chapter in the origin of life and the chapter in the origin of humanity. And we've got a book on both. Who is Adam on human origins and origins of life? And so we basically say, In your biology textbook, it's out of date. Here's where it needs to be updated. And we're finding that we're able to get our books into public schools, not to replace the high school textbooks, but to supplement them.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, one of the things I appreciate about your books is it doesn't dismiss the scientific evidence. You know, it does a great job in showing how the scientific evidence is how it applies. Well, it's
2: amazing to me how these unbelieving scientists are providing us with the best scientific evidence that indeed the Bible got it right.
1: Yes. Now, Hugh, what about the argument, the multi-universe argument, that there are multi-universes out there and ours just happens to be the right one that can sustain life?
2: Well, back in the 1980s, I predicted to public audiences that eventually the evidence for fine-tuning design for the specific benefit of human beings would become so overwhelming that atheists would have nowhere else to go but to appeal to an infinite number of undiscoverable universes. And guess what? That's exactly what has happened. The evidence has gotten so strong that that's their only option, is to say, well, the reason why we see all these fine-tuned characteristics is that there's an infinite number of universes. We're all of them different. And one of those universes, by pure chance, happens to get these thousands of fine-tuned parameters uh, just right. Now, in one sense, That hypothesis is not science, because there is no capacity for us to discover universes beyond our own. If God made ten, we'll not know anything about the other nine, no matter how much science we develop. And so it's pure speculation. But in one sense, it is testable. The one example I can give you, back to that coin, what if I were to flip a coin 1,000 consecutive times and it came up heads all 1,000 times? You could argue that that's by pure chance. However, you'd be wise to examine both sides of the coin before you bet on tails on the next flip. And so, what I've written about in my book more than a theory. We can do that with the universe. We can choose to examine it in more detail than we've examined it so far. And if in examining it more detail, we see the evidence for fine-tuning design goes up rather than down then that's a strike against the atheistic version of the multiverse, and it's a vote in favor of God's supernatural intervention. And here's what's exciting. The evidence for fine-tuning design accumulates by about a factor of 100,000 times per month. So when I speak on university campuses, I tell the skeptics, if you're not convinced today, wait one month and see what the emerging scientific discoveries tell you.
1: Well, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, it seems that Christians don't need to be afraid of science. The more and more we're studying, the more and more it's seeming to point more and more to an intelligent designer.
2: Well, that's my message when I speak, is that science is the ally of the Christian faith. It's never been the enemy. The Bible tells us to go to the book of nature for cooperative evidence that God indeed exists and possesses the attributes that he does.
1: Now, Hugh, I know you've talked about this a little bit, but this whole area of string physics uh, that says it's in support of that there are multi-universes and perhaps the laws of physics, as we understand them, don't apply in this arena. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I've written about that in my book, uh, Beyond the Cosmos. You know, string theory is one of many theories that helps us to explain why the particles that make up our universe are the way they are. But it's not the only model that's able to do that. But what they all have in common is this. They all invoke six tiny space dimensions to accompany the three large ones of length, width, and height. And with string theory, you've got 10 to the 500, that's 10 with 500 zeros after it, possible solutions that will enable you to explain why the particles look the way they do. And that's caused some physicists to say, well, Maybe there's 10 to the 500 universes, and ours is the one where the string theory worked out uh, just right. Well, we astronomers are making observations on quasars, which are actually able to constrain that figure of 10 to the 500 possible string solutions. It's much lower than that today. But as an astronomer, I can tell you, we're never going to get the number down to one. It's always going to be a really, really big number. But I don't see it as a vote for the multiverse or a vote against the multiverse. It's neutral on the subject.
1: Now, Hugh, you have a chapter here that's why we're here. Now, science may be able to explain how the mechanics of the universe work, but it can't explain why the universe exists and why we're here. Tell us about that chapter there.
2: Well, I actually argue that it can explain why we're here. And so, in Improbable Planet, I make the point that, notice that everything we see in the universe in terms of its fine-tuning design with Earth and Earth's life, it all targets making possible the redemption of billions of human beings. And recognizing that, you know, God's works of redemption predate his works of creation, and everything God creates is for the purpose of redemption. That obviously begs the question, exactly what is God's redemptive plan? And I argue in my book that when you look at the universe, the earth and earth's light, you can at least get the outline of what that redemptive plan is. But the bottom line is that God created us human beings for purpose, for destiny, and for meaning. And so the book basically ends by saying we can know for sure that we have an eternal purpose and destiny given everything we see in the universe, the Earth, and Earth's life, and therefore it's incumbent upon us to find out what that purpose and destiny is. Now the book ends by sharing what that is in general for humanity, but I close the book off by saying the purpose and destiny of every human being will be distinct from every other human being. It's one thing to find the general purpose and destiny of humanity we also need to find what it is for us as individual human beings.
1: Now, Hugh, one of the things you're saying is that science and biblical faith are allies and not enemies. So as a Christian approaching the sciences, should we find what appears to be a contradiction between the scientific evidence and what the Bible is teaching? How should we approach this?
2: Well, keep in mind that we human beings don't know everything, and we have our biases And therefore, every model will have things that don't seem to fit. In science, we call them anomalies. But here's how we know whether or not we got the right model. If the anomalies get bigger and bigger as we learn more and more, and more and more problematic for a model, then we've got the wrong model. But if the anomalies get smaller and smaller and less and less problematic, we've got the right model. The anomalies will never go away. And so and when a new anomaly comes up, you say, hmm, maybe we need to do some more research here. Uh, let's get some more measurements, let's make some more tests, let's pull in the other disciplines and see how they apply to this, and let's see what happens to the anomaly. If it gets bigger and bigger, we need to make adjustments to our model. If the, adjustment, if the anomalies get dramatically bigger, that's proof we got the wrong model. So this is how science advances, I also argue that's how systematic theology advances. We need to go to the Bible with the same approach. Is our interpretation of the text, it's going to cause anomalies. What happens to those anomalies as we compare the text with interpretations of other biblical texts? That, in my opinion, is why God gave us 66 books instead of one. So we would have tools whereby we can pursue anomalies in our biblical interpretation.
1: So what you're saying, Hugh, is that when uh, the evidence seems pretty strong, we just can't dismiss the science right away. We need to carefully consider the science, and the Bible is never wrong, but our interpretation of it could need refining, and so we need to look at our interpretation, are we interpreting the Scripture correctly, and not to dismiss both right o- either one right away, but to carefully and humbly approach it and study to see is the scientific evidence correct, are we interpreting that correctly, and uh, is our biblical interpretation correct? Is that what you're saying?
2: That's what I'm saying. I mean, Psalm 19 and other biblical texts make it clear that God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture and both are utterly trustworthy and reliable. But that's not true of our interpretations. And so when we see a conflict, say, between our interpretation of the book of Hebrews and uh, the book of Genesis, we need to examine those two books and other biblical books to see where we made a mistake in our interpretation. That's how science advances. We may see a problem, say, between a discipline of anthropology and a discipline of astronomy. Well, we need to pull in the other disciplines and see if we can resolve the apparent contradiction between those two scientific disciplines and the bible tells us we need to integrate the book of nature with the book of scripture it's just like hebrews and romans they're both the error-free word of god both of them are telling us truth and nothing but truth if we see an apparent contradiction we know we've made a mistake in interpretation And when you pursue those uh, mistakes of interpretation, you learn something you didn't know before. So I think God did this on purpose. On purpose, he gave us two books in order that we could advance in our learning of what God wants to reveal to us. And by the way, God wants us to have fun in the process. His intent was that we would experience great joy as we resolve these anomalies in studying the book of nature and the book of Scripture.
1: Well, Hugh, you know, as we're wrapping this great interview up, what do you see as the future of science and academics? I know the intelligent design or the idea of intelligent designer has had difficulty getting on the into the academic arena, but we've seen great headway. But where do you see it going?
2: Well, we've been making great headway on secular university campuses by presenting intelligent design and the context of a testable model that makes predictions of future scientific discoveries. So how we engage uh, unbelieving scientists, we say, hey, let us present for you our biblical testable creation model, and let's have you critique our model. But here's the point. If our biblical model provides a more comprehensive and consistent interpretation of the record of nature, and it's more successful than competing models and predicting future scientific discoveries, and you need to seriously consider the claims of the Bible on your life. On the other hand, if it goes the other way, then maybe you've got a point in saying, we Christians have it all wrong. Put it to the test, and that's a biblical principle. Paul put it this way in First Thessalonians, test everything, hold fast to that which is good. So that's how we're engaging the scientific community, And we've seen many scientists come to faith in Christ, including one who won a Nobel Prize in chemistry.
1: Wow, fantastic. You know, one of the criticisms we're hearing in the popular media is that the creation or the intelligent design model is not falsifiable. How do you answer
2: that? Well, that's the point. If if you're not identifying who the intelligent designer is, if you're not willing to lay out the scientific details of your model, then in many respects, it's not testable. And so I deal with that frequently in university campuses, saying, I understand that you see this in other intelligent design presentations, but we're different. We're providing a biblical model that's falsifiable, that's testable, and predicts future scientific discoveries. We invite you to put it to the test. We invite you to try to falsify it, and we invite you to test our predictions.
1: Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. So do you see the intelligent design theory making headway in the academic arenas now? Or do you see that still it's going to be a very difficult struggle? I mean, I'm sure it's a difficult struggle, but do you see us gaining credibility on the academic campuses more and more?
2: Yeah, It will gain credibility if and only if it's presented in the context of a testable, falsifiable, predictive model. I mean, that's how science works. And what I've noticed is when we go in with that approach into a secular university, they immediately respond by saying, You guys have a place at our scientific table. I mean, and it's a biblical principle. The scientific method is what led to this whole concept of testability, falsification, and predictions. It's a biblical principle, so we Christians need to embrace that.
1: Dr. Ross, tell us if people want more information on the things that you're talking about. Where can they go to, to find more information?
2: Well, they can go to our website, reasons.org. Our new book, Improbable Planet, just got released, so they can get it there. They can also get it through any of the major dot-coms. But we invite them to come to our website because we have a place where people can ask questions. Each of our scientists and philosophers has a Twitter page and a Facebook page where we answer people's questions. So, and there's literally tens of thousands of articles that you can read for free on our reasons.org
1: website. Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Hugh Ross, an astronomer, And best-selling author and founder and leader of a fantastic ministry, Reasons to Believe. And you can go to his website at reasons.org. Not only dialogue with him, but a great team of scientists and philosophers who are on that website to address the issues of science and faith. A fantastic resource not only for you, but for your high school and college student who's out there wrestling with the issues of science and faith. Well, Dr. Ross, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for publishing this wonderful book again, The Improbable Planet.
2: You're very welcome.
1: Aloha, this is Pat Zucaran, your host here on Evidence and Answers, and I hope you enjoy my interviews with our great guests. And I hope your faith is strengthened when you hear the compelling evidence for belief in God, the inspiration of the Bible, and the miraculous life of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. And if you're not a believer in Christ and are asking questions, thank you for listening, and I hope you're finding answers to your questions here on Evidence and Answers. I'd like to invite you to go to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, where you can find great resources like our interviews and articles on the evidence for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. I thank you for your partnership as well. In my work here with Evidence and Answers, it's your prayer and financial support that makes it possible for me to keep our show on the air and serving the Lord, not only here in Hawaii and the United States, but throughout the world. And if you're not a partner yet, would you pray and consider becoming a partner through prayer and financial support and sharing in my work here on Evidence and Answers as we transform lives for Christ by convincing minds and changing hearts? Because one of the things we know, the heart will not commit to what the mind is not convinced of. So we're all about transforming lives by convincing minds and changing hearts. So please pray about it. And you can make a donation at evidenceandanswers.org. So thank you for listening and being a part of this great ministry.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share it with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.